words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Well, as you all here know, this is the first week of Lent. Our hymn board tells us so. And uh, one, of our, one of the things that we do often during Lent is pray the great litany. Lent is our season, our 40-ish day season of fasting and almsgiving and repentance and prayer as we prepare for Easter. So we do like to do some of those extra prayers. And the great litany is, is, is really one of those masterpieces in our prayer book. It's called the General Supplication, and it is a masterpiece of intercessory prayer and, and in which we cover every possible Need in a responsive format. There's a, it's a call and response to that if you've never prayed the litany. Um, we, we, in our parish, we did this as our processional on Ash Wednesday. Um, we will be doing that at other times, probably during this Lenten season as well. But it was the first prayer to be adapted into English from Latin at the time of the Reformation. So that makes it actually our oldest part of the prayer book is the Great Litany. Um, and in the old days, the Great Litany was recited every Wednesday, every Friday, every Sunday after morning prayer, Wednesday and Friday being the two traditional Christian days of fasting, and then Sunday that day when we would traditionally fast prior to receiving communion. And in my private devotions, I like to use the litany as a noontime prayer on Friday when I remember to, um, kind of as a remnant of that older tradition. Well, there's this part on page 55 in your prayer book in the litany. This is probably my favorite part of it. Um, we pray, this is the top of page 55. By the mystery of thy holy incarnation, by thy holy nativity and circumcision, by thy baptism, fasting, and temptation, good Lord, deliver us. Well, have you ever paused to consider how it is that our Lord's fasting and temptation can deliver us, how it contributes to our deliverance. Well, today's gospel reading from Matthew 4 invites us to reflect on Jesus' time in the wilderness and our deliverance thereby. So please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, our gospel passage, Matthew 4, 1, and that is in your prayer book on page 126, page 126. We read, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Well, aside from the obvious, uh, obviousness of that hunger part, that would be the case. Uh, there's a few things I'd like us to notice as we look at these first two verses of Matthew 4. First of all, we, it begins with the word then. And that should make us wonder what it's following. If there's a then, that will always tie it to whatever came before. So what came first before this time in the wilderness? Well, if you turn the page backwards in your Bible to chapter 3, you'll find that Jesus' fasting and temptation took place immediately after his baptism. So Jesus had just officially gone public in the ministry. He had just began that public ministry, and he was immediately led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. And that's the second thing we ought to notice, that it was the Holy Spirit who led Jesus into the desert, and specifically, St. Matthew tells us, so that he would be tempted by the devil. So this was no chance encounter. This was no attack of opportunity 
on the devil's part. This rather was a planned engagement on our Lord's part. He went into the desert looking for a fight as soon as he began that public ministry. And then third, we see that the actual temptation occurs after those 40 days of fasting when he was all alone. Well, this is not the first time we read in the Bible about a 40-day fast in scriptures. In Sunday school, we talked about some of those topical themes we might look up. Well, that 40-day theme is one of those you might look up. And we, again, have not even seen, this is not the first time we've seen a 40-day fast in the scriptures. Way back in Exodus, Exodus 34, Moses fasted for 40 days while he was on Mount Sinai, receiving the second tablets of the law after God had relented from killing the Israelites over the golden calf incident. So you remember the story, um, Moses has the tablets of the law, he comes down from Mount Sinai, he finds them worshiping the golden calf, Uh, Moses gets angry, breaks those first tablets, God says he's going to kill them, and Moses says, well, um, um, no, no, Lord, please don't do that. (laughs) And he goes back up on the mountain. Moses spent those 40 days communing with God and interceding for his people. Well, later on, we see the prophet Elijah fasting for 40 days when he's heading to Mount Sinai to meet God after the Lord had rescued him from the wicked Queen Jezebel. So Elijah's this lone prophet, this lone voice for the Lord, and uh, Jezebel is trying to kill him. And so uh, as Elijah's on that journey to meet the Lord on Mount Sinai, he's fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Then this pattern of 40 shows up often in Scripture. Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness before reaching the promised land. And during that time, they are tempted and oftentimes fail to resist it. And they incur God's judgment. Well, Noah spends 40 days writing out the rains of the great flood in Genesis, during which all of creation seems to be forsaken. All of creation is under judgment Yet it was through the waters of judgment, the waters of the flood, that God would rescue humanity, even as he is indeed passing judgment on humanity's wickedness. So like Moses, Jesus was fasting on behalf of his people. Like Elijah, Jesus would be alone, the lone righteous man in the midst of a sea of wickedness. Jesus, of course, being the only one who was ever truly righteous, with no wickedness at all. Like Israel, Jesus would be tempted in the wilderness, but unlike Israel, Jesus would resist the temptation. And like Noah, Jesus would be the first fruits of a new humanity who had been redeemed and rescued from judgment, even as Jesus would take that judgment on himself, going through death, just like Noah went through the waters of the flood. Well, let's look at those specific temptations, verse 3 in our gospel passage. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Many of the church fathers drew a parallel between the temptation of Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden and our Lord's temptation in the wilderness. The temptation to create bread out of stones is often seen as a parallel to our first parents' temptation to eat of the fruit of the forbidden tree. That fruit looks good. 
That bread sounds really good after 40 days of fasting. Well, Robert Krauss, who's a 20th century Anglican theologian from Canada, he points out that eating when hungry is certainly not a sin. He says, not that there is anything evil about being hungry and wanting to eat, but the temptation lies in seeing such satisfaction as the purpose of his vocation and the point of God's kingdom. So in other words, the kingdom of God is not about our flesh. It's not about our satisfaction. Jesus' mission was not about satisfying the flesh. It was not about your best life now. And indeed, for Christ to make bread out of stones by his divine power would show him to be a distrustful son. It would be to show him a son that, that he's a son who distrusts his father. Because rather than trusting in God for his sustenance, Jesus would be providing for himself by his own strength. But Jesus rightly rebukes the devil with God's word, quoting from Deuteronomy that it is God's word that ultimately sustains us. Man does not live by bread alone. And if God could sustain him on the 40-day fast, just like he sustained Moses, just like he sustained Elijah, if he could provide manna in the wilderness for the Israelites, surely God could sustain him and would sustain him for a few more hours. Well, let's look at verse 5 for the second temptation according to Matthew's version. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Well, in this second temptation, this second test, Satan is also using scripture, twisting a passage from Psalm 91 that is supposed to be about um, assuring us of God's goodness and God's protection, and Satan twists, twists it into a temptation for our Lord to be presumptuous. And you'll find the entire text of Psalm 91, by the way, in your uh, bulletin, because our intro and our tract came from Psalm, Psalm 91. How often does the devil continue to twist God's assurance into presumption today? How often have you been tempted to sin and there's this little voice saying, it's okay, don't you know God will forgive you? Go ahead, it's no big deal. But it is a big deal. Sin is always a big deal. And we should never let our assurance of God's mercy be perverted into assuming on his grace. And how often, when we give into that little voice, does the enemy then immediately change his tune? Now the voice is saying, how could you do that? God must be really angry at you. You're probably not even a Christian. You should just run away. Just like when the serpent said to our first parents, did God really say? And not long after that, Adam and Eve were hiding from God in the garden. Jesus, though, combated a misuse of Scripture with a proper use of Scripture. Rather than presume on God's protection, Jesus again quotes Deuteronomy, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
If you listen to a lot of the voices in kind of popular level Christianity today, it's easy to find some of those voices calling us to put God to the test. It's easy to find people who are going to play fast and loose with scripture, getting a sound bite here, a sound bite there, so that they could try to manipulate God into doing what they want. It's easy to find that name it and claim it theology, even among those who claim to uphold the Bible and believe it. And on the other hand, uh, there's a similar thing in other voices in today's Christianity who claim the name of Christ but want to build up a distrust for the Bible, again, often by twisting its words. I recently read a review of a book by a popular writer and pastor who tries to make the case that the Bible doesn't say what it actually says regarding human sexuality. In her book, she claims that the word holy means to unify, while the word purity means to separate. And therefore, as long as everybody is consenting and feeling good and it's a unifying thing, we don't need purity because purity is separation, holiness is unification. And we want unification. Well, there's, there, other than the obvious problem that that's not what the Bible says, that's not what holy means. <laughs> that's not what holy and purity mean. <laughs> the word holy literally means to be separate from. Separate from sin, separate from evil set apart. So watch out for this kind of thing, whether it's from that one camp or from the other camp. God is in control, not us. We submit to him, not the other way around. You shall not put God to the test. Well, then turn to verse 8 for that third temptation. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus says to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall, not, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And to me, this seems to be something of a last ditch effort on Satan's part. I mean, after all, the son of, if the Son of God would not make bread for himself or manipulate God into a display of power, is it really likely that our Lord is going to bow down and worship a demon, a demon whom he created? Yet, is it likely, is it likely that our Lord Jesus, after all this, is going to be a disloyal son? But how often do we fall for the big lie? We fall for the lie that is obviously a lie. Um, I think uh, the uh, Nazi propagandists knew something about that, um, if, if you recall your history. Remember how the serpent tempted our first parents, and, and he said that they would be like God if they ate the fruit. Oh, you'll, you'll be little gods yourself. And isn't this the devil's own downfall? Wasn't his original downfall that same pride which says, oh, I could become equal to God. I could kick God off the throne. Well, Dr. Krauss writes, these temptations of Jesus represent the essential forms of all temptation. They are our temptation and the temptations of the church. They are the illusions that we can use the divine spirit for worldly ends, that we can make God subject to our whims and idle curiosities, that we can be as absolute as God. But our Lord, 
our captain, he overcame the devil. Christ went into single combat with the enemy on behalf of you and, and me and the whole church so that we also would have victory over temptation. St. Paul tells us that Christ is the second Adam, and unlike the first Adam, our second Adam succeeded in his test. St. Paul writes, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And that's 1 Corinthians 15.22. So this is our hope. This is assurance, not presumption. If we are united to Christ, we have his life. And so that's why we pray in the litany, by thy fasting and temptation, good Lord, deliver us. Adam's, and by extension our, failure to resist the devil brought us death. Christ's success against the devil brought us redemption. Excuse me for a second. Got the uh, allergies creating chest issues. <clears throat> so we noted earlier in our passage that, th that this passage takes place right after Jesus' baptism. Well, if you continue on in Matthew 4, the next part is Jesus calling his first disciples and then beginning that ministry in the Galilee. Well, in Lent, we enter into ministry with Jesus. In Lent, Jesus takes us with him as he accomplishes his earthly ministry. So we've just, we've just begun this journey today with that very first part of his ministry, that, temp that temptation in the wilderness. But we know that it will eventually lead to the resurrection on Easter Sunday. But first, we have to go to the cross. We have to go to Good Friday. So our journey is not easy, but Christ is with us. And indeed, he went there first, paying our way, paying our penalties, uniting us to himself. The devil tempted our first parents with empty promises of godhood. And they bought the lie, like we often try to do today. But here's the irony of it all. Jesus' success in being an obedient son, in resisting the world, the flesh, and the devil, meant that the second Adam, who is one of us, Jesus is true man, is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Forever and ever, joining our humanity to his divinity. And then we, as his adopted brethren, are made co-heirs for all eternity. Our first parents took the offered shortcut, and it led to disaster for the human race. But our Lord Jesus, he took the long road, the road prepared for him by the Father to save us and redeem us and join us to himself for our good and for his glory. So this Lent, let's walk with him on this road and do so the rest of our lives as well. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.